Oh my god, hi! Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Sondheim on Adderall. My name is Chris. I'm going to be your host for this episode. We're going to be talking about a show called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And um, I don't know how long we can talk about it, to be honest with you. Uh, or this, this one's going to be interesting. This is... Uh, I don't know. Let's see what happens. Got some notes here. Got some thoughts. Revisited it. But, um, yeah, it is what it is. If you have not seen a funny thing happen on the way to the forum, I'm going to ask you to pause your device right now and go um, see some version of it. A good entry point, I would say, is the 1996 Revival album, which cannot be really found anywhere. Maybe it can. It can't. Uh, you can't find it on Spotify which is where I tend to find things. But uh, go ahead and break open the YouTube and find a YouTube playlist of songs on there. That should, uh, should do the trick. That's what I did. Anyway, before we get to that, uh, I want to cover a couple of corrections from the last episode. Boy, oh boy, I've been spreading misinformation on the World Wide Web here. Um, don't tell Neil Young and Joni Mitchell or they're going to want to remove themselves from any platforms that we share, because I know that they feel strongly about such things. Uh, Jack Klugman was not in the film On the Waterfront. I was thinking of Carl Molden when I said that. Molden. Carl Molden. Jack Klugman uh, was in a lot of other things, but certainly not On the Waterfront. My apologies to the Jack Klugman estate. Also, um, I, I talked about tonic chords several times in the last couple episodes, and turns out I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. That's, uh, whatever I said a tonic chord was is not really what a tonic chord is, and I think what I meant was a major chord, which uh, is a silly mistake to make for someone who claims to be a musician. Here's the thing about this episode. Um, I'm itching to talk about Sunday in the Park with George because I just saw a production of it at the Pasadena Playhouse that was pretty good. We'll talk about that later, certainly, when we get to that episode. But um, I'm such a hopeless completist. Is the word completist or completionist? I've heard it both ways, and I think it's a bullshit made-up word in either case, so it doesn't matter how you say it. But uh, we'll go with completist. I'm a completist, and um, it just seemed wrong to me to start chronologically and then skip to the early 80s as much as I'd like to. So today I'm going to slog through a show that I don't give too much of a shit about. I used to. I used to love a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And I still am fond of it, and there are things about it that are... Nice. But um, I think that the headline for this episode, for my thoughts at least, on if anything happened on the way to the forum, is uh, let's put it to bed. It doesn't need to be done again, uh, anymore. If anything happened on the way to the forum, thank you for your service. Let's, uh, let's make our way to the Library of Congress and um, let's not be performed anymore. 
But, um, you know, there's more to it than that. Of course, we'll get to it. Um, let's go to the Sondheim on Adderall news desk. The Adderall shortage continues. Uh, many months into this Adderall shortage. And woe is us. We see the effects all around us. Um, air traffic controlmen are um, crashing planes into other planes. And <sighs> yeah, society's crumbling because uh, people don't have their crank. Now, I should say, this uh, Adderall shortage does not negatively affect my life in the slightest because. I have a prescribed dose that I do not faithfully take, so I uh, have found myself with a stockpile of Adderall. So um, even if uh, there's a delay in the procurement of my prescription, it's not like I'm uh, going uh, bottle to bottle on these things. I'm taking way less than is prescribed to me. Um, so, of course, once after, during the Adderall apocalypse, once the roving gangs are out in the streets um, ransacking at people's Adderall, I will be a, uh, I'll have a big target on my back. So, you know, avenge my death. L listen to this and uh, know that uh, th that's what happened. If I turn up missing, it's because people found out uh, about my stockpile. Okay, well, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. This is a show that aspires to be nothing but funny. Loud, fast, and funny. Right? It's a musical comedy. We're going to pull out all the stops. It's vaudeville. Let's have some fun. Now, here's a burning question about this show. Is it funny? I would argue no, it's not funny. Um, I think it was funny, but maybe no longer funny. And I'm not a comedian or a comedy writer. I'm just a person. I'm an I'm, a, I'm an audience member when it comes to comedy. In fact, comedy in general, especially like stand-up comedy or improv, is maybe the number one art form that I'm happy to just be in the audience for. Like everything else that I like to consume, I do tend to like to try to try my hand at it. Like um, songwriting, uh, acting, like I, I, not on a professional level, certainly, but I, I like to get in and give it a whirl with those things. Uh, podcasting as, as of late. Um, but yeah. I, I do not aspire to do comedy, but I am a great patron of the comedic arts. I live in a city that has a lot of it. Um, so, you know, I, 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 it's really not for me to say, no, not being a comedy practitioner, whether this is a funny show or not. But some things age well, some things don't age well. And I think this one is maybe like a net negative for the comedy in this one. Whereas other things, like if you watch The Jerk with Steve Martin, there's some moments and some scenes where you go, Gah. but overall, it's a net positive. It still makes you laugh. This show has a couple of moments that make you laugh, but overall, it's kind of a, Ugh. 
Uh, don't at me on this. That's what the kids are saying, right? Don't at me. Um, I could be wrong. This is just one guy's opinion, and that's what this whole show is. So go fuck yourself. Um, if you like a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and I'm pissing on your, uh, I'm, I'm yucking your yum. That's another thing the kids say, right? I'm not here to yuck your yum, but it's not a hostage situation, as I said before, so feel free to not listen. Um, I'm assuming everybody that hasn't been exposed to this show has already paused their device and returned, so let's get into it now. Um... <laughs> Idiot. Um, when I was at UCLA for the five minutes that I was at UCLA before I dropped out because I was too stoned and drunk all the time, um, I saw an improv show made by some guys, mostly guys, maybe even all guys from the theater department. And it had a real like frat boy vibe. At the time, me, you know, 19 years old, stoned. I thought it was the most delightful, hilarious thing I'd ever seen in my life. Um, but you know, it was it was uh, it was sort of a rude, bawdy, <laughs> improv frat show. I feel like this show is frat boy humor, college humor, as imagined by antisocial nerds from Yale. That's the vibe, uh, I think. It's got a very... Oh, yes, we will play a prank on the headmaster. At the appointed time, we will all... You know, it's a... Like, it's a very... It's very masculine, but also very nerdy. And I guess you could make the case that that's what a lot of comedy is. I know that, like, Harvard comedy writers sort of branched out into the culture with National Lampoon and The Simpsons is apparently, or like when it started, was apparently all dudes from Harvard that uh, had never held hands with a girl before. Uh, so this show, you know, it's not, I, I'm not here to enforce the Bechdel test, certainly. Um and I think it's a waste of time and it's boring to drudge up old shit and look at it through 21st century lens of uh, what's problematic. So I'm not going to do that here. I'm simply going to point out that in 2023, it does sort of grab your attention that there are two main female characters, one of which is a shrew, ball-busting shrew, the other of which is a sexy airhead. And every other woman on stage is a prostitute, a uh, sex worker, or an ancient Roman sex worker. <laughs> it begs the question, why the hell would Sondheim make this his first music and lyrics project when he's so intent on being taken seriously as a fucking composer? After doing lyrics only. Like, why would he shoot himself in the foot like this? I, and I think one thing that this kind of reveals is that the whole Stephen Sondheim style, method, philosophy of musical theater, it may not have been the static thing that was born into him that he just needed an opportunity to get out. It may have been developed over the years. 
you know, uh, what was this, 1962, that would have made him 32 years old. And boy, oh boy, as somebody pushing 40, um, it really does give a, there is some solace to be found in the fact that like, as good as those early ones are, the genius of Stephen Sondheim didn't really kick in until Company 1970, when he was 40 years old. That makes me sort of breathe and calm down and think, okay, there's time, there's time. You can bullshit around for a while and make crap. Which again, not that a funny thing happened on the way to the forum is crap. And by the way, I'm gonna call it by its full name throughout here, I'm not gonna shorten it. And this is um, some leftover snob trauma from my childhood. I had a mother that uh, became furious if we said fridge instead of refrigerator, or if anybody did, not us, or, uh, there's, yeah, I, the shortening of things, uh, who cares? Uh, the International House of Pancakes, <laughs> things like that. So, I think one of the good things about this, or one of the, one of the lasting I guess maybe the number one thing that has stood the test of time from a funny thing happened on the way to the forum is its opening number, Comedy Tonight. So that leads me to another burning question. Is this the best, or rather most appropriate, opening number in Broadway history? And um, it's kind of a good lesson in what an opening number should be. And, you know, cut to, I'm about to regurgitate some things that has been, uh, some things that have been said a million times in a million Sondheim biographies and by Sondheim himself. This is public knowledge that a lot of people know. If you don't know it, then great, you're about to learn something. If you do know it and you're like me and you get annoyed when someone else explains it to you because you're like, yeah, I know, um, then uh, bear with me for a few minutes or um, feel free to take a bathroom break. So... The opening number got revised several times for this show. The original opening number was a song called Love is in the Air, which is a, kind of a generic, cute little soft shoe. Love is in the air. Dee, 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 dee. Uh, which, if you've ever seen the film The Birdcage, I think I'm going to be talking about The Birdcage a little bit later because there's it has a few things in common with this show but uh they do sing love is in the air at one point uh robin williams and christine baranski when he goes to visit her in her office they're like hey remember when we used to do that act and then they sing and dance to the song love is in the air that is a song that was cut from uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum there are actually a few sondheim songs in the birdcage great fucking movie the birdcage first rated r movie that i ever saw may have been the second i think ed wood was the first ed wood the tim burton film still my favorite tim burton film and it's weird that either of those films were rated r i guess they just rated made them rated r because of bad language and the um existence of gay characters that kicked them into an r rating offensive that that would be rated R. So, uh, boy, way off track here. Love's in the air. Uh, it didn't set up the show because the show turned out to be low comedy, balls to the walls shit. And that was just sort of a polite little cute song, which is kind of a problem throughout the show. The mismatch of the laugh out loud script and the clever, droll, clever tone of the songs. 
but he changed it to invocation, which then the director said was not hummable. That motherfucker. We talked at length about hummable tunes. Uh, don't don't come at me and tell me that songs aren't hummable or are hummable, because uh, that's gonna piss me off. And so then the, the Jerome Robbins came on board as play doctor. I learned some information, by the way, in the past few days about Jerome Robbins that I can't wait to tell you about. Stay tuned for a takedown of Jerome Robbins. Genius director, choreographer, not a very nice guy in whatever. Uh, the So he said, yeah, you need a song that really sets up the show. And so Sondheim was like, these motherfuckers, they're not satisfied with any fucking, fucking opening number that I come up with let me try this one more time you assholes and then he writes comedy tonight which is uh, a very simple um i'm trying not to like sing the lyrics and doing the melody at the same time because i don't know the rules about how many syllables you can sing without owing money to somebody probably i'm probably way off base with that but um that may not even be a thing. Who knows? Uh, also, who's listening? Like, if this ever got to the point where enough people were listening that I had some sort of copyright cease and desist thing, then that would be a win. But I'm not even shooting for that. Or am I? Is this a defense mechanism? A lot of people, this is their favorite Sondheim song, along with Send in the Clowns or... You know, or, or or like when he did a weekend in the country and a little night music, they were like, hey, he finally wrote a hummable song. The only reason the motherfucker is hummable is because it's repeated over and over and over and over and over again to the point where you finally like, okay, it's in my head because you sang it 50 goddamn times. Even Comedy Tonight, as like accessible and quote unquote hummable it is, he can't resist adding in some um, interesting dissonant notes like... Like, <laughs> right there. Like any other person. A Julie Stein figure, wouldn't you? Lovers, liars, and clowns. Not Sondheim. He's going to go, clowns. Am I right about that? Do I have that wrong? Do I need to open up Scribed and look at the vocal selections to see if I'm right about this? No, I do not. Take my word for it. Comedy Tonight is not just the opening number for If Anything Happened on the Way to the Forum. It's the opening number for pretty much any Broadway review um, that's ever been done in any church basement organized and compiled by uh, a wine mom in the United States of America. One of the most prominent examples of this is uh, the aforementioned on a different episode, Side by Side by Sodheim. <clears throat> which I was in side by side by Sondheim at the, uh, oh yeah, I never said where I did it and I'm not, and I won't, I need to protect my anonymity here or the anonymity of this theater. When we did side by side by Sondheim, this was the opening number, which made no fucking sense. If you actually know the trajectory of side by side by Sondheim. And they did that. They did side by 
that one I'm happy to shorten because I feel like it's a fucking tongue twister for some reason. They did the first side-by in England in the 70s. And it's ridiculous as an opening number because it does not set up that show properly. That show is not a comedy. They say, you know, nothing but nothing with kings, nothing with crowns, uh, nothing with gods, nothing with fans, nothing that's formal. Like, it's, for God's sake, they sing I Remember Sky and they sing fucking, they sing serious songs inside by so it's not just a comedy. So that's a stupid opening number. And whoever's idea that was, that was a stupid idea. And how dare you. So, uh, so yeah, Comedy Tonight is a very catchy song. And I don't want to shit too much on this idea of catchy. Like if a song is catchy, it means it gets stuck in your head. And for whatever reason, yeah, a song can get stuck in your head. But I think that is subjective. Different things can get stuck in different people's heads for different reasons. So a lot of people have complimented my work <laughs> by saying it, uh, this, the, they're catchy. And um, I feel some Sondheim shame when they say that. Like, oh, I'm just a little tunesmith with my catchy little tunes. But hey, what's wrong with a catchy tune? I'm contradicting myself left and right today. The funny thing about the structure of this show is that Sondheim said that he wanted to rebel a little bit against the Rodgers and, Hammerstein, and Hammerstein style, which was um, complex characters and songs that moved the story forward. But in rebelling from that style, he went backwards by doing arch characters, caricatures. So why, like, what, why, again, why is this the first thing you're going to do on your own? It boggles the mind. And he never really um, addresses that. And that's, uh, you know, I don't know. It bothers me. I'm going to talk a little bit about the movie later on that they made in the 60s, which is departs a lot from the show and um, in some ways that are good, in some ways that are bad. But um, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum is like a Mel Brooks movie with manners. Like there's a little less of the poo-poo pee-pee. When you see the movie especially, um, it has the same vibe as uh, History of the World Part 1, the Mel Brooks film. It's a lot like that. It's Dad Joke City, baby. And um, maybe just because those are both set, they, like that movie has a big ancient Rome section uh, where it's like, yeah, dumb, anachronistic poo-poo pee-pee jokes. Um, but a little less poo-poo pee-pee with this one. Um, I dare say I like this one better than, I'm not a big Mel Brooks fan, to be honest with you, except, uh, one or two. Um, and I tend to like this one a little bit better, although I don't really like this one. See, this show is for men of a certain young age, and there are, well, there are a lot of artifacts like this. Um, 
Kevin Smith movies. I watched Kevin Smith movies as a prepubescent lad or as a lad emerging into puberty and thought they were the most hilarious, ingenious thing ever. It's like, wow, he's using all this vocabulary, but he's talking about sex acts and dicks and things. Um, or like the poems of Charles Bukowski. I think that there's a certain age that a young man is at where these things ought to speak to him. And then if they still speak to him past that age, maybe they should uh, think about that. Boy, is that judgmental, Chris. You just, uh, you just offended half your audience. So now you have one person left. Well, for that one person, I'm going to push on here. The book to A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum is the real hero here as far as skill, right? Um, the songs are fine. Like, there are nice moments in the songs. But um, the construction of this book is really impressive. And that's no surprise because it was written by some masters of the craft, Larry Gelbart. Creator of MASH. Sorry, creator of Mobile Army Service Hospital. Is that what that is? Uh, I don't have to call it that. And Bert Shevelov, also a seasoned comedy writer from Yale. <laughs> and um, here's something that Sondheim says in the Craig Zayden book that is... Um, maddening to me because of how wrong he is and i hate to poke holes in my god here but what the fuck is he talking about listen to this he's he's praising the book here but here's what he says the plotting is intricate the dialogue is never anachronistic and there are only one or two jokes the rest is comic situation really what the fuck are you talking about Again, I am not a professional practitioner of comedy, but does he know what comedy is? I'm just going to go down a brief list of jokes, standalone jokes, and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Wait, a brilliant idea. What? That's what we need, a brilliant idea. Number two, a word of advice, never fall in love during a total eclipse. Number three, I shall return in a nonce, at most two nonces. Number four, never mind who she is. Who is she? Number five, for us, there will never be happiness. We must learn to be happy without it. Number six, he raped Thrace, and then he did it again and again. He raped Thrace thrice? So, you know, don't worry about my delivery of any of those, but can we agree those are jokes? The, the, fucking, the script is full of jokes. The idea that it's only comic situation is... Uh, ridiculous also the whole point is that the dialogue is anachronistic the whole goddamn point is that we're gonna have you know mid 20th century vaudeville goofy style in ancient rome so what do you mean like that everybody's talking like they're in, in the fucking catskills i feel gaslit by sondheim here i wish he hadn't said that uh, he sometimes says that he regrets, he's, he's been known to say that he regrets trying to be funny in his songwriting here. 
because he had no idea that the book was going to be so funny and that the books should have just uh, not attempted to be funny. I got a secret for you. The songs and if anything happened on the way to the forum are not funny. <laughs> not even a little bit. Again, they're, they're clever and droll. A lot of the podcasts I listen to are hosted by stand-up comedians and um, apparently like stand-ups, like real people that are like, I'm a real fucking stand-up, blah, 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 blah. Like they, they, very, they feel very hostile towards the idea of like clever shit, like NPR funny, uh, Sedaris Berbiglia. And I love that stuff. I'm not saying that's my opinion. And I like some of these songs as standalones, but they really, they're completely mismatched with the book. Which Sondheim agrees. Um, James Goldman, his buddy James Goldman told him this. Um, James Goldman, uh, acclaimed screenwriter, most famously wrote the book The Princess Bride and then the screenplay of The Princess Bride. I've been told that the book of The Princess Bride is really worth reading um, and that it's got some extra shit in it and that it's a great book. Who has the time to read the novel of The Princess Bride? I can't be bothered. I have to uh, do this. <sighs> Um, so yeah, Bert Shebelov, the co-book writer, he says the song should have been brasher. There was too much intellectuality. And that's true because you got sometimes showing off a little bit just to be like, Hey, uh, remember me? I'm from Yale. The bong of the bell of the buoy in the bay and the boat and the boy and the bride are away. Cool story, dude. Now, the original cast of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum includes uh, many very talented comic actors and singers, but um, I sort of confirmed something I knew on some level in doing my uh, half-assed research for this show to talk about it. And that is that Zero Mostel may have been the funniest man to have ever lived. He is a delight. Um, the quotes from his interviews in the Craig Zayden book here are like the best part of the whole book of any chapter. I unearthed his Dick Cavett interview from 1971, and it is so funny. Um, I mean, I like watching those in general, and if you... Um, are uh, younger than, say, 60 years old, you didn't live through uh, the Cavett era, maybe 50, I don't know, I don't know how long he was on the air. Uh, I would recommend going back and watching some of the stuff on YouTube, like Dick Cavett to me. And my favorite interviews that he does are the ones where he's being bullied, <laughs> and Zero Mostel is like bullying him all the way through this. And it does not feel like it's, a lot of it is prearranged like it really does feel like Zero Mostel just has funny coming out of his pores at all times he talks in this book about how he didn't want to do this show and um, one of the guys uh, on the team called his wife saying hey can you convince him to do it and his wife said if you don't do this show I'm going to stab you in the balls and so then he said okay I'll do it that was his uh, telling of that story and um, apparently <laughs> <laughs> apparently he would ruin the show by um ad-libbing like crazy <laughs> um this is a quote from either gelbart or shevelov i apologize to those two deceased 
comedy icons for forgetting which one of them told the story in the Zayden book. They said that Mostel would be um, announcing results of the heavyweight fight that night, or he would wish everybody a happy Halloween, or he'd imitate the other actors. Like he would just throw that shit in. And then apparently when they revived it 11 years later, he was throw, he would throw in Watergate jokes. Um, that's really funny. I mean, not that like that's a good way to behave, but I, I just, I, I find it hilarious that Zero Mostel <laughs> would do that. Also, apparently he also did this on Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, he originated the role of uh, Tevia, Fiddler on the Roof. And yeah, he would throw... Uh, Imagine announcing the results of a heavyweight fight during Fiddler on the Roof and just completely fucking ruining it because you're an asshole. And um, in the Zayden book, they it's, it seems like after this quote, they like they ask Zero about it. And he says his response is, why must it be dull as shit? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just so tickled by that. One thing that Sondheim says in his Finishing the Hat book is the, that uh, he, he says that songs can damage a farce. And you have to be careful. Quote, Farces are express trains. Musicals are locals. Savoring moments can be effective while a farce is gathering steam, but deadly once a train gets going. And he also says that's why most of the songs are bunched into the first act. And he, that makes sense, because guess what? Most of the songs in the second act are shitty. And uh, feel like they shouldn't be there. They should have done a thing like they did in Tangled. And, um, you know, Tangled is a little uh, after my time. I'm not, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with Tangled. I was already a full-grown man paying income tax when Tangled came out. But um, for some reason, Tangled decides to stop being a musical about halfway through. And that's not even a farce. Like, they, they have great songs, and then they just have no more songs. And they're like, let's just make this a regular movie with no songs. Like, right at the halfway point. Kind of weird. So then why? Like, why did Sondheim make this? Like, why did he rebel against the Rodgers and Hammerstein? Like, he could have... He could have stuck to the form of songs moving the f story forward and had it be funny. Right? Couldn't he have? I mean, I think that maybe the bad news, like the, the, the harsh truth at the core of this is that Sondheim is not that funny. I mean, he can be. A Little Priest is, uh, that's a good time. It's just clever, though, again. And maybe he just doesn't have it in him. But if he worked a little more closely with the book writers, couldn't they have, like, you can manage the timing, even, like, at the writer level, by making funny music and songs. Have a new cue. That's a farce. Book of Mormon. They managed to do it. And you laugh out loud at the songs themselves. Not at the, you know, comic situation surrounding the songs. So I think he's wrong here. I'll say it. Sondheim's wrong. Stay in your lane, Sondheim. So like I said, the entry point to this show should not be the movie. It should be the 1996 Nathan Lane cast recording. Uh, if there's going to be any entry point to this, if you even need to enter into this. Um, I listened to it in the late 90s, and so it sounded very fresh at the time. And it had a lot of uh, 
everybody's favorites, uh, the people. First of all, Nathan Lane. Like, to me, Nathan's, Nathan Lane's voice feels like home because of maybe growing up with it, similar to Angela Lansbury. Like, when I hear Nathan Lane speaking or singing or Angela Lansbury speaking or singing, I feel like uh, I'm home. Which is why when they did that um, after 9-11, they did uh, sort of an updated commercial when Broadway opened back up. They did little clips from all the shows that were out. It was like an update of the I love New York thing from the 70s. Uh, but then they had Nathan Lane closing it up saying, come to Broadway and let's get on with the show. He doesn't sound like that at all. And I apologize for the terrible impression. But it makes you tear up because you're like, yeah, Nathan Lane is Broadway. One thing that's mind-blowing to me, which I just learned, is that Nathan Lane came out of the closet in 1999. And he did it because of the Matthew Shepard thing. I mean, everybody must have just been like, yeah, we know. Um, right? In this production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, uh, we get not only Timon from The Lion King, but we get Pumbaa. Timon and Pumbaa, back again, baby. Ernie Sabella, voice of Pumbaa, also of Saved by the Bell fame, when they are they have that summer job at the beach, or one of them does, and he's the boss and he wears a lot of Hawaiian shirts. He plays uh, Marcus Lycus in this, so you get Timon and Pumbaa talking to each other, bullshitting around. You got Mark Lynn Baker from Perfect Strangers. The, uh, I guess you'd call him the straight man from Perfect Strangers. Most recently, uh, also on Succession. Uh, also looking super old, like our buddy uh, Peter Rygert from Gypsy. He's like the uh, libertarian. Wait, is he? No. What is he? He's something. He's not libertarian. He's, the politi he's, he's in the other family. They're trying to buy their news organization, and he's like liberal, but then he becomes friends with... Um, Jesus. Connor? Roy? Yeah, Connor. And then helps him with his campaign. Succession season four premiering next month sometime. One thing that's weird about that 96 revival of A Funny Thing Happened the Way to the Form is um, Nathan Lane at one point is replaced by Whoopi Goldberg. And then Whoopi Goldberg is replaced by David Allen Greer. Now, um... That sounds like those, the, sounds like the, uh, sounds great. Like, sounds like those would be very entertaining and those are very uh, talented people. But uh, they are playing a slave. Like one of two slaves in the story. I don't know if anybody uh, felt weird about that. I feel weird saying it out loud. These are all, of course, based on Ancient Rome and the plays of Plautus, Plautus, Plautus. And um, a lot of his plays had slaves in them, but apparently in the plays, like the slaves, like, yeah, we want to be free, but we're not like that into being free. This show is all about Pseudolus, the slave, fighting for, trying to get free by his freedom, but doing it in sort of a zany madcap way. Revival was choreographed, of course, by Rob Marshall, who... Um, made the movie musical Chicago and Into the Woods, which for my money uh, are two of the best movie musicals of the past couple decades. And when Chicago came out in 2002, I was kind of like, here we go. Musical, movie musicals are back, baby. 
everyone said that was happening with Moulin Rouge. But um, no, sir. Moulin Rouge was the day the music died, as far as I'm concerned. Once again, don't at me. Haven't seen it on stage. Don't care to, frankly. Hate the movie, Moulin Rouge. Hate, uh, hate just about everything about it. But um, yeah, Chicago, I mean, that was just a really good um, way to make a movie musical. And there hadn't been like a well-made one for like most of the nine, like all the 90s and half the 80s. So uh, yeah, that was good for all of us to see Chicago. So um, the older movie of A Funny Thing Happened in the Way to the Forum with Zero Mostel, it's not that bad, but it's kind of bad. It's not it, it's it's not great. I'm glad that they cut so many of the songs out because again, um, the songs don't really do much to help it. The songs really only function as breathers. But uh, if you're a subscriber <laughs> to the Rodgers and Hammerstein method of keeping the show moving, then it can be frustrating to have a breather, especially a really long one like everybody's got to have a maid. Then keeps starting and stopping and starting and stopping and starting and stopping. Um, but why why did they have to add a chariot race at the end? That sucked. I don't know. I don't like it when people add action sequences or races to comedy films, like the movie Stripes with Bill Murray. It's like that's 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 a funny movie, and then they fucking ruin it at the end i don't even know what happened like I, I i don't even watch it when i watch stripes look i don't sit down and watch stripes uh once a week or once a year i haven't seen stripes for 20 years but um yeah they, we don't need action it's boring <laughs> um you ever seen the movie help with the beatles movie not the help help with the beatles same director as help and it shows it's exactly like that and uh, I kind of like it. You know, it's colorful. It's fun. It's, um, I like that about it. Weirdly enough, Michael Crawford is in this movie playing the young hero, whose name is Hero. And um, the names, by the way, in this show are, are, are great. You have a hero and hysterium. Um, some words I didn't know were words yet, like panacea is the name of one of the courtesans. And I... Um, I, I didn't know that panacea was like a word. Uh, Michael Crawford, as I said, so he went on to be the Phantom of the Opera, famously. Uh, also famous as a singer, but they cut his songs in this movie. Uh, maybe he didn't learn how to sing yet. I don't know. Buster Keaton is in this too. As Erroneous, another great name. Another, uh, I didn't know the word until later. And when I learned the word, I was like, oh, Erroneous. Like the guy from that musical. Here's what Zero Mostel says uh zero mostel picked the director richard lester and um but then he was very unhappy with him and he was pissed off about how the movie was going this is a direct quote from zero mostel from the zayden book the great thing about the piece on the stage was that it was one set 16 characters three houses and you did it very simply you go to the movie and there's horses zebras peacocks shitting all over the place your father's mustache orphans winos donkeys with hard-ons Zero Mostel was a national treasure. He doesn't get the credit he deserves. Larry Gelbart, co-writer of the book, says that when he saw the movie, it was like a truck that backed over you again and again and again. 
similar to what the great Ken Kesey said about seeing the movie version of his work, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He said it was like watching a motorcycle gang rape your girlfriend. A couple of side notes. Um, I teased a little earlier that I was going to um, challenge the legacy of Jerome Robbins and uh, tear this motherfucker down a notch or two. Um, Jerome Robbins was a rat for uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee. McCarthyism. He ratted out friends. And check this out. He ratted out Jack Guilford, original hysterium, and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Now, what's odd about this is that he did this several years before the Broadway premiere of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. So that's got to be an awkward rehearsal process, right? You're, um, well, he's not the choreographer. He was the play doctor. But let's just say, for instance, you're Jack Guilford and you're in this show. And even if Jerry, Jerry Robbins, is just coming to visit rehearsal and he's sitting in the back with Stephen Sondheim and Larry Gilbert and Bert Shevelov and he's like watching and taking notes would you really want to get on that fucking stage and be like that's the guy that ruined my life and career by uh, ratting me out as a communist the great Zero Mostel was also called before the House Un-American Activities Committee but he told them to go fuck themselves and he talked mad shit to them um, he said uh, he called uh, 20th Century Fox uh, 18th Century Fox because they were collaborating with the committee. That guy, that guy's my favorite guy. Zero Mostel. I'm sure there's some story about how he, you know, uh, violated uh, women or, you know, uh, wore a swastika or something. But I like, I like Zero Mostel. Uh, okay, I saw this on stage. Funny thing happened the way to the forum. Um, in the late 90s, early 2000s at East West Players in Los Angeles. If you're not familiar, East West, East West Players is a great theater company. Uh, it's an Asian theater company. And they do productions with all Asian American actors. They, most recently, they sort of single-handedly took down the ovations system here in LA because of a whole turn of events at the final Ovations Awards where they got the names wrong. They um, flipped the names of the two Asian actors or people that were nominated. And um, so they released a statement saying, it's, and this was right during the Stop Asian Hate movement. And they said, oh, we're not going to be participa participating in the Ovations system anymore. And then a bunch of other theaters said that too. And then that day, the Ovations Awards said, we will no longer exist. <laughs> and you know what? Good riddance, buddy. Um, and I say this as an Ovations-nominated actor for a show I did 10 years ago. Um, I think it's the most self-important horseshit ever. And I'm, I think that now that it's gone something else can be built and maybe there can actually be good theater in Los Angeles for the first time ever. Ooh, I just got controversial. Um, no, I didn't. This theater in Los Angeles is almost as irrelevant as this podcast is. Uh, nobody cares about it or um, patronizes it. 
And that's why there are so many possibilities and that it could be so good because there's nothing here. There's nothing happening. People could be making new musicals and workshopping them. But where's the money, Chris? Where's the money coming from? I don't know. Um, anyone got any money? Let's do some new shit. Anyone want to put on my claustrophobic, disturbing kitchen sink drama musical? Because uh, I'm ready. I got songs. I got a script. Let's do this. East-West Players. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Late 90s. The starring role of Pseudolus uh, was played by Getty Watanabe. Who looked familiar to me during the whole first act. I was like, I know this guy. Uh, couldn't be bothered to crack open the program and read his credits until midway through the second act and I was like oh my god <laughs> it's the guy from Booty Call the um the, the movie Booty Call with Jamie Foxx and Tommy Davidson which um was like a naughty movie that me and my friends watched in sixth grade that I became obsessed with thought it was so funny I'm gonna tell you something about Booty Call though it's not funny uh don't watch it uh, particularly not with your kids. Getty Watanabe is in that, playing um, a pretty offensive gay Asian stereotype. And then um, I saw Sixteen Candles much later in life. He's he is I guess his claim to fame is he played Long Duck Dong in Sixteen Candles, one of the most famous uh, offensive Asian stereotypes in cinema history, second only to Mickey Rooney, um, but played by an actual Asian man, Getty Watanabe. Getty Watanabe is great. Uh, he's very very funny. He was also in the original cast of Pacific Overtures by Stephen Sondheim, which I think we'll talk about eventually. Although that'll be a tricky one. That episode's going to be tricky. Uh, okay. Anyway, talk about a few of the songs here. Like I said, the songs don't match the script, but, um, there are moments in some of the songs that are really great um, just um, because it's Stephen Sondheim and Stephen Sondheim knows a thing or two about pulling a song together. I want to say my favorite song is Free just because uh, that melody and those counter melodies. Yeah, I like it. Although, again, it, it brings the story to a grinding halt. It just makes a list of uh, the things he'll do when he's free. Bit of a precursor to if I were a rich man. It's, it's if I were a free man. Um, I have sort of a personal emotional connection to the song in, uh, Impossible, which, um, you know, I... I, I uh, Around the time I was starting high school, I was sort of learning to play the piano, mostly playing by ear. Still can't really read music very strongly, but I um, I would go to Baxter Northrop Music here in the San Fernando Valley, and uh, my parents would buy me sheet music, and I would fuck with it. Uh, big Broadway fake books 
you know, play the chords and then just sort of um, finesse them to make them sound like the original cast recordings as I had heard them. I did have the vocal selections from this show, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And um, the song Impossible, I convinced my non-singing father to learn this song so he could sing it with me because it's a father and son. Why did you look at him that way? Why did you look at him that way? Um, not to get too maudlin here, but um, my father had recently been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and sort of there was like that was the first time I sort of saw a crack in the armor with him where he was starting. He was a very uh, sort of solid person. But then there were like it seemed to be vulnerability. He was like he would get emotional and like um, and so I remember singing this song with him and thinking, wow, this is something I'm going to think about when he's gone. And then he lived for another 20 fucking years. <laughs> uh, he lasted till 2018, folks. So, um, yeah, I wish I could have gone back and told myself that, saying like, hey, um, you know, don't be blue. He's going to be alive a lot longer. He's just going to, uh, it's just going to be, uh, yeah. Anyway, Impossible. It's a good song. The Miles Gloriosus songs are badass. Both of them. Bring Me My Bride and the Funeral Sequence. There are some songs in the show that are flat out useless, like I'm Calm. It's just supposed to be funny, not funny. One joke song. Oh, he's saying he's calm, and he's clearly not calm. <laughs> Philia's song in the second act, That'll Show Him. One joke song, Waste of Time. Brings everything to a grinding halt. Um, no good. Not very good. So yeah, um, I think if we've learned anything from this episode, it's that uh, I'm not just a Sondheim yes man. I'm not going to uh, just say everything he does is amazing. Like, quite frankly, the other Sondheim podcast. Which... Um, I listened to a couple others of that. Yeah, they, they, they seem um, pretty unwilling to say, hey, this isn't good. You know, uh, when, when things aren't good, most of it's good. Uh, who cares? But the thing is, um, uh, one thing that bothers me about theater people, and I know that I <laughs> talked at length about this last time, and I'm not going to get too into it now, but when theater people talk about a show, they say... Um, whether it works or not. They never say like, oh, whether this is good or whether, oh, oh, you know, oh, I really like this or this is a, f the, I, 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 what am I trying to say here? And it's not just theater people, okay? It's, um, I think it's maybe film people do this too. It's just like people that consider themselves insiders or practitioners in a certain medium. They're like, uh, oh, this will, this doesn't work. That doesn't work. That works. And that assumes an objective good and an objective bad that I think is bullshit because a lot of the things that people have said don't work are some of my favorite things in the musical theater. Um, somebody I worked with, um, and I'm using work in the traditional sense there, at one point, um, Merrily We Roll Along came up and uh, he sort of sighed and said, oh, a show that will never work no matter how many times they revise it, will never work. And uh, he's so wrong. He's so wrong. 
and maybe it doesn't work for you. Like, I think that people, that's sort of a, uh, a discourse community thing where they're saying this is the, all they're really saying is this is the popular knowledge on this topic among me and my friends who are um, in the know. And it strikes me as arrogant and I don't care for it. Not one bit, said the man with the most arrogant podcast of all time, Sondheim on Adderall. Let's come in for a close here, folks. This has been a real treat. Revisiting a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, a show which at the age of 14, I would have told you, is top tier, one of the best musicals ever. And at the age of 39, will um, concede is not very good anymore. Maybe it was then. But um, let's put it away. Let's put it back up on the shelf. Can we, please? I know that Sondheim just died and we all want to go back through the canon and see if we can revive things and put a sort of a modern spin on it. The Pasadena Playhouse, for instance, is doing a whole Sondheim celebration this, this year. April through August, maybe. Something like that. I might have that wrong. Yeah, April through August. And the first thing they did was Sunday in the Park with George, which I saw three days ago, Wednesday night. And uh, sobbed. It had problems, certainly. And I'm going to get into him um, in that episode. But um, I will say, let me tease that a little bit. I think there's a pretty good chance, although I don't want to confirm yay or nay on this, Sunday in the Park with George may be my new favorite musical of all time. And it may have always been, and I may just not have wanted to admit it, because when I got into all these musicals at a very young age, as a preteen, really. When I got to this one, I knew that it was like one of the prominent ones and it had a lot of flashy pictures and it looked really cool. But then I I read the libretto and I listened to the soundtrack and I think my final word on it was like, this is boring. I can't hang with this one. I liked it's hot up here, but the rest of it bored me. And it took me years and just sort of little things getting through, little bits of things like color and light and finishing the hat to realize um, there's something here. And then in just the last three years, I cannot watch it or hear it without my heart breaking into 70 goddamn pieces and uh, crying. So I think that that information alone is enough to uh, win at the title of my favorite. Although I'll cry at the end of Merrily. We're off track here. Um, this is just a little tease for those later episodes. Um, join us next time. We are not going to talk about Anyone Can Whistle, which would be the next one here chronologically. And the reason for that, folks, is I cannot bring myself to give a shit about Anyone Can Whistle. Sorry. It's not my bag. It's not my scene. I like a couple of the songs. But um, it just doesn't work. <laughs> Anyone can whistle just doesn't work. 
Maybe it does. I could be wrong. Hey, I was wrong about Sunday. Might be wrong about passion too. So next uh, episode, we're going to talk about company, which, if you ask me, is the first uh, truly great Sondheim musical. I think that the Sondheim uh, lightning in a bottle brilliant period is 1970 to 1990, which is not to say there aren't um, flashes of brilliance before and after that period of time, but those shows, not a dud in the bunch, man. Um, the work he was doing in that period of time from the age of 40 to 60, that was, um, that was where it was all happening. Anyway, um, thank you for listening. If anyone's listening, God, just send me some kind of sign, some kind of message. Just let me know. Just, uh, you know, send a carrier pigeon to Van Nuys, California with uh, the contents of an iTunes review on it. But regardless of uh, whether or not I get that communique, I'm going to keep on doing these because um, I enjoy them. I enjoy doing it. It uh, gives me uh, gives me gives my life purpose. Um, so, so, like I said, I'm a completist, so I'm going to continue in the tradition here of not having a quote ready to go off on, and I'm going to look up quotes, um, Sondheim quotes um, that say goodbye. Sondheim quotes about goodbye. Um, you visited this page on so-and-so date uh, okay here we go um the end doesn't mean that it's over the end of the funny thing happened the way to the forum episode is not the end tell them okay who can guess that show if you can guess that show in three seconds you win the this week's grand prize Three, two, one. Wrong. It's from Assassins, sung by John Wilkes Booth. Anyway, thank you, everybody. Uh, talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>